0: Well, let's jump right into this, because now we're going to transition just a little bit. And so, to just pick up where we left off, just to, for a moment, is we've been in the idea of what is an identity crisis. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. We've been looking at this idea as what should the church look like, and what is the church? You have to define your terms. And a lot of times, we just throw words out arbitrarily. We never ask the question, what does that even mean? And one of the things is the church. What is a church? What does the church do? What is the role of the church? When did the church come into existence? All of these different things. And we have this misnomer because we've got this idea that this church formed something or other, was just birth in Acts chapter 2. It was never thought of before that. And now we're in this church age and we don't worry about Israel and all this other stuff. We don't understand a lot of things. But where we are is understanding that if we're in Christ... We are new in Christ is the key you realize you don't get there by being a good person You don't get there by giving money. You don't get there by going to Africa and feeding starving children All of those are wonderful things that will not make you a new creation. You don't get there through baptism You don't get there through communion. You don't get there through confirmation. You get there through one way that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And then you will be saved. It's ironic that when he was talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is like, I know you're from God, because nobody can do the things that you do unless they are. And he says that you have to be born again. What didn't he tell him to do? Listen, Mr. Pharisee, I need you to sit through a series of classes. I need you to be baptized either as a child or later on in life. He never said any of those things. When he looked at the thief sitting next to him, He didn't say, listen, as soon as you get off this cross, I need you to get baptized, I need you to spend some money, I need you to do this thing. He said, no, today you'll be with me in paradise, and that's it. Today, not tomorrow, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's one way there, and it starts with this. And when you understand this premise, then you grow upon it. But I'm going to share today with you something that I haven't opened up about here in the last, oh, a little over two years, probably. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6, it says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is in enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. What this means is what you think matters. You can think spiritually or you can think carnally. Both have ramifications in your life. And as we begin to look at this, we're like, well, what does a Christian look like? And how does a Christian talk? And what do they act like? And all these other parts. All comes back to your thinking life. Why does that matter? Why is this a big deal? Why did Paul write this? In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul again, verse 1, I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ who is in presence and lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against uh, some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. We don't walk in the flesh, or we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. This is crucial. In fact, if you understand this, it will open up things to God that you never even knew possible. This passage right here can completely transform your life if you believe it and you do it. You act upon it. Because this here shows you the filter that everything must go through. He says, I take every thought captive, every one of them. That means the good ones too, not just the bad ones, the good ones. I want them all captive. I want them obedient to Christ. So we spent this last several weeks asking a series of questions. Number one, who is God? Number two, who am I in relationship to him? Number three, how do I worship him? And now we're going to transition into who is my enemy. The ability to answer these questions distinctly from Scripture is crucial because this is the foundation upon everything we believe. Understanding who the person that we say is God matters. There are lots of claims about who God is. There are lots of thoughts about who God is. But how do you differentiate the truth from everything else? Because contrary to popular belief in the world we live today, truth matters. Not your truth, not my truth, the truth. That matters once we have an understanding of who God is then it comes down to well who does he say that I am because when you understand who God is and how he's revealed himself to us then it's like okay this is great that's God but who am I in relationship to him because if you have a deist mentality which means God is up above and we are down below and he really doesn't interfere with our lives yeah he kind of lit the fuse to get things started but he doesn't really interfere with our lives, then it will have an amazing impact on the way that you behave and the way that you act and the way that you expect God to respond in scenarios, which would be, I don't expect God to respond in any scenario. Life just kind of happens. This question is what will keep someone who's been locked up in bondage for years completely set free. When you begin to realize that I am a child of God, and with that, it's not just who I am in a relationship to him, but whose I am. I belong to him. My life is not my own. That means when somebody asks you, what is your goal in life, where should you check? With God. Because we have one goal, to know him and make him known. This whole chasing your passion, chasing your destiny, guess what? I just described what it should be, to know him and to make him known. Not what are you going to do with the rest of your life, I'll tell you what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I'm going to know him, and I'm going to make him known. There are details in that, certainly. But how one gets there is irrelevant. That one gets there is what matters. Then it comes to the responsibilities that I have to this God. How do I worship him? As we said, worship has very little to do with music. Music is a tool. It was used in scriptures, completely biblical, but it can also get in the way. Because when we talk about worship, well, how was worship today? Depending on the song set, did they play it in the right key? Did the drummer stay on beat? We don't have a drummer, so I can say that. He took the week off. Did they start in the right tempo? All that kind of stuff. That's how we think about it, but what does that have to do with it? As we begin to look at this and deer into this, we realize that worship is the way I live. That my life is not being my own that I'm to come to him as a living sacrifice. And we talked about this sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, how these were literal offerings that were brought to the temple voluntarily of their own volition in a, with a grateful heart to what God has done for them. You see, for them, it costs them something. They have one less cow, goat, whatever. What does it cost us? Time and ego. That's what it costs us. Do you realize that laying down your your ego to worship something else takes an enormous amount of effort in a human being? An enormous amount of effort. And yet we just kind of just blase, just do whatever we want. We can just play whatever we want, say whatever we want. We can do whatever we want. No, every moment of your life is the way that you are worshiping God because it is the fruit of your lips giving thanks and praise to Him. So how are we doing? Probably not so great. The last part is who is my enemy? And this is equally important, if not more important, because here's the thing. When you know who God is, and now I know who I am, and now I know what his expectations are from my life, but I know there's a battle. What or who am I battling? And it's not the people around you. And if you're a Republican, it's not the Democrats. And if you're a Democrat, it's not the Republicans. Okay? That's all for show. That's not what it is. But who are we battling? Who is my enemy? And what am I battling against? Because we just saw Paul talk, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So there is a warfare that is going on. Some are suited up. Some are getting blasted. So we have to deal with this. And as we dive into this topic, we're going to kick over some sacred cows along the way. There are some things that are believed that are not correct. Because again, what is our source? Scripture. But before we get too far into this, I want to share something with you guys. The way the Lord moves in my heart, in my lives, a lot of times I'll get pictures of things. God will show me something. And as I begin to reflect upon those somethings, I begin to see kind of what God is showing me. Now, some people, God is very direct with words. Other people, it's just, you know, whatever. For me, it's a little bit different. And over the last two years, it's been quite an interesting ride, if for no other way of putting it. It's been interesting, right? Right? We as a church, we as the body of Christ, the church, have seen the ups and downs. We've seen how important an election can be. We also see that when our guy gets in, how we kind of let our guard down a little bit. It's been a little over two years ago that the Lord, I, I spent every morning in prayer. I usually get to the office between 6 and 6.30. I spend every morning in prayer, just praying God, you know, praying for people, doing different things like that. And, he, and I, I begin to see this picture And I'm not talked about this until this moment because God told me not to talk about this until this moment. Now, I am not a prophet and I'm not pretending to be one, okay? And it's pretty easy for somebody to get up and say things after they've happened. Oh, yeah, the Lord showed me that, right? I'm not even doing that because I'm not writing a book and I'm not asking for money. So you can trust me in this, all right? But the thing is, is we've got to be like, okay, God, what is going on? And it's been a little bit over two years ago. And what I saw was this picture. And it was kind of like this house that was kind of crappily built. And there were a bunch of holes in the foundation. The foundation was soft. And I began to see a bunch of people kind of going in and out and things like that. And it was like the foundation was old, but somebody had intentionally pulled stones out of the foundation and replaced them with other things. Soft things, pliable things, moldable things, which was interesting to me. And in that, I began to see, okay, well, what's going on here? And the Lord just kind of showed me, He's like, there's going to begin to be a separation between the sheeps and the goats, okay? Good and the bad. But inside of this, you're going to be a, see a separation of people who truly want what God has for them today, what God's calling is, and are pretenders. Because there's both sides of the aisle. There are people that sit in every single church across America that are fully devoted to God, and there are people that attend church, right? Just the way it goes. And he said, you're going to begin to see people, and there'll be a separation that begins to take place, because there's going to be a veil put upon the eyes by the enemy. Now, that veil can only be put there one way, if you allow it. But the reason it was happening is because the foundation stones had begun to be removed and put in with other things. Now, not everything is bad. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I immediately, when you hear this, people mind go, the homosexual agenda, all these other. that's where we go. But it's not even just that. It's the watering down of scripture in and of itself. This word that he has has been watered down, and we've allowed stones to be pulled out and other things to be put in. And you're going to watch, and he said, there's going to be a fence, there's going to be a separation, there's going to be a divide. And people are going to get offended, and they're going to get mad, and it's just the way it's going to be. Some will stay, some will go. That's just life. That's the way it goes. Now, in no way did I foresee the pandemic hitting any of this kind of stuff. But we saw a separation because what happened in that moment? The church responded carnally. We freaked out. We were ill-equipped. We were not prepared for any of this stuff. And the funny thing about that is that these stones have been removed years prior Now, if you are a mason, we've got one sitting back there. He he puts in foundations and all that. He's sitting in the hallway. He might be taking a nap right now. Who can blame the guy? Yeah, oh, he turned his head. We're good. He doesn't even know I'm talking about him. Jim, I'm talking about you, Jim Egan's. Hi, Jim. He's not even paying attention. Wow, that's all right. We're gonna let it go. But if you're a foundation guy, and you go down and you look at your walls, you start noticing rocks are missing, stones are missing, stuff. Your immediate response is, I need to put something in here. I need to fix this immediately but it was like we never looked because we didn't want to see it that's kind of what's going on so I'm explaining this the best way that I can because I don't have the words for all of this and there are parts that I'm not going to share today but these things have been put in here and we've accepted a truth that is contrary to scripture we've accepted the big truth but we've allowed the little lies you guys have heard me say these things these things have been leading up the reason I've been speaking on them is leading up to today and a few weeks from today Is that we've allowed these things to take place in our lives and we didn't question it. We didn't stop it. And the number one thing that's happened is because the church today is thinking carnally, is we've lost discernment. In fact, we were talking about this a little bit this morning. Where'd you go? Yeah, we're talking about this this morning. We lack discernment of what is good and what is bad. Hebrews talks about, I think it's Hebrews chapter 3, talks about those who are more mature through reason of use, have had their senses exercised to recognize what is good and evil. You see, the the evil metric has moved closer and closer to the good metric in the eyes of society, and much of the church has allowed that to take place. But for some of us, or some people, they have this idea of what this should look like, and they're like, well, this is just the way it's got to be every single time. And that's not accurate. It's, It's how does God move in a situation? And it's getting back to rebuilding the foundation. That foundation was stripped away years ago. And individually, we've allowed it to be done, spiritually speaking, through events that have happened, because instead of processing whatever takes place through the lens of Scripture, we've allowed our victimhood and our feelings to dictate how we believe today. And so what God was showing me in this is that the church today is in a bad way. And I say today, but this was a little over two years ago. And he told me to get ready. There's something coming. Things are coming. You're going to see it. And I didn't share this. You know why? Because I'm not doom and gloom. It's not my thing. Okay? I only share things that God specifically tells me to share. At that point in time, it was just something. And, and to be honest with you guys, I didn't have it all figured out day one. It's kind of like as, as Neil's talking about. There are times that something where they're like, oh my goodness, that's what he was showing me there. This has become to process. But we have watched individuals where God has moved on their heart to move a certain way, and then they will justify why they don't have to do it. We've watched individuals who have watered down Scripture or justified bad behavior and just found Scripture that support that idea. We watch this happen all the time. And why is that taking place? It's because the enemy has come in, and where did he attack? Not physically. It's in our minds. It's a spiritual thing. And what are we to do? Take every th- thought captive. And what did we do? Did God really say that? That tree does look good that's where we are now why that matters and where we're going is we have to get past our ideas and our preconceived notion of who the enemy is you see as I begin to put a series together I spend a lot of time in prayer and I wait for the Lord to say all right God what's next what's next you know and sometimes it's a couple weeks before sometimes it's several months before it just depends on the scenario but what's something that struck me is as I've been praying about getting into this is that while we feel that we are here spiritually speaking Truth be told, we're down here because we've still allowed our carnal mind to dictate how we respond to certain situations and certain things instead of flowing everything through the truth of Scripture and getting back to that, how we respond. So let's begin to look at this, all right? Bear with me in all of this. Who is our enemy? If I were to ask you this question, if I was asked any kindergarten that's been to any church, who's the enemy? It's Satan, Right? Pretty easy answer, you know. Now, you got to understand that who your enemy is and who's causing your problems may not be the same person, okay? But we think of this battle of good and evil in a certain way. In fact, I've got a picture here to show you. And I've shown this before. But this is how we picture it. You've got a white European Jesus, which makes perfect sense. And then you've got this horned devil Lucifer... And they're arm wrestling. Isn't that cute? They're arm wrestling. Because that's how you solve all disputes. they a good arm wrestling match, right? There was a time I might win a few of those. But you see, understanding what it is you're up against will dictate how you react to it. In this case, none of this is accurate. The des- pictures are not accurate. The description are not accurate. And the warfare is not accurate. Because the weapons of our warfare are not arm wrestling. Okay, Maybe thumb wrestling. Maybe settle this a little easier. I don't know. Paper football. I don't know. You see, we've got to get past this idea of like what we think is going on. I've seen it all over the map. I've seen the devil get credit for things, and it's like, well, why did you say that? I've seen God get blames for things, and I'm like, well, why did you say that? We were, I was in a church service one time, or a church, and um, trying to get the computer going. It was messed up. It wasn't reacting right. And one of the guys that was at that church, he comes up, he's like, We've, we just bind the devil in Jesus' name and blah, blah, blah. And you just went on and on and on about the computer that wasn't working. What's the first thing you do when the computer doesn't work? Restart it. Worked magically after that. Had a hiccup. It's what happens. You see, we're always going this. But we think we've got this figured out and we think we know who our enemy is and the truth is we don't. And it's important you do. Not because we're glorifying him, but we need to understand it. When I trained salespeople, okay, years ago, It's like your competition is not your enemy. You're not adversarial against them, whatever it was that they were selling. It's what makes you unique compared to them. What sets you apart, your product apart, your company apart, whatever it is, what sets you apart and makes you better than them? Well, how are you going to figure that out? You got to look at what they built, what they do, how they act, whatever. You know, it's the same concept that if you work at a bank, you learn to recognize fake money from real money because you touch the real thing so much that it just sticks out. You begin to recognize this. That is called discernment. And that is where we need to be as born-again believers is that we know God's word so well and how he responds that when something doesn't pass the sniff test, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I need to look into that a little bit deeper. So let's start with the basics, okay? It's very foundational. What is Satan's name? Why right, did I ask you this? The overarching response is Lucifer. Whoever said that, thank you, Lucifer. Right now, what I'm going to tell you is that is not correct. Because the names that we associate with Satan are more description than they are proper names, all right? So let's get into this. First, start with Lucifer. Where does this even come from? On Isaiah 14, 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nation. Now, there's a lot that's going on there, but but the bottom line is this, um, without drilling into the context of the verse and stuff like that, Lucifer seems to be implying it to the one adversary, the one who gets cut to the ground, the one that, the, the big enemy, the one who Jesus was arm wrestling a moment ago. But you have to look at the context, you have to look at the words. And if you have a Bible, and I would encourage you to do this, it might have an asterisk by it. And in that asterisk, it may say something that says literally day star or morning star. You see, Lucifer is not a name, but it's a description. The Hebrew word that is translated uh, Lucifer is halel, H-E-L-E-L. It means to shine or to bear a light. Okay? Well, you don't get to Lucifer from that. Where you get it from is from the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate is the Latin translation done in the 3rd or 4th century by a guy named Jerome. It's what the Roman Catholic Church has used since that time. And it's the Latin Vulgate is where we get the name Lucifer. It comes from two words. The first one is lux, L-U-X, which means light. And then ferre, F-E-R-R-E, means to bring. So to bring light. Lucifer isn't a name, but it's a description. He wasn't the light bearer, he was the bringer of the light. And if you've studied with me before, and we've talked about the fall of Satan and what was going on, that will make sense. I don't have time to go into all of that today, but that will make sense. So if his name's not Lucifer, then what about the term Satan? Well, how you pronounce it is actually Satan, and it only means adversary. That's all it means. Both the Hebrew and the Greek, it means adversary. It's less of a proper name, it's more of a description of him the adversary, but that could be used about anybody, couldn't it? Absolutely it can. But we've taken that small S and capitalized it with a big S and assume every time we see that, it must be talking about the big guy. And you can take that however you want, okay? But there's another name that we see, which is Beelzebub. In Matthew 12, let's look at this, verse 24. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said the fellow, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So this seems to be somebody who is higher up, this Beelzebub, but we don't even know where it comes from or who it is. So let's go into this for a minute, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent to the messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, It is because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. When the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you come back? And so they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now this is where we see this is, but who is he? Beelzebub, and Beelzebub is a Greek form, but it's the Hebrew name of a Philistine god that was worshipped in the city of Ekron during the Old Testament period. And the term literally means the Lord of the flies. Flies associated with death, flies associated with a lot of things. Again, we're not getting into all of this, but this is where this name comes from. Now, apparently, they believe that this is the King of the demons. He lords over them, he rules over them. What's interesting is what we see in Matthew chapter 10. Verse 24 says, the disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? So you see the association here. Because Jesus knew what they were accusing him of, and that was that he was doing things by the power, and we're going to say Satan. By the power of the enemy. This wasn't God that was performing these miracles, that he was somehow empowered by the enemy to perform miraculous things to confuse the people. Now, does that sound like something that we're awaiting to this day? It's called the Antichrist, right? Because this Antichrist figure is going to rise up with the power of the enemy and do things that will distract and deceive the people. So, this concept of the Antichrist is not a new one. This is one that's been held for a long time. And basically, anybody that did not meet the narrative of the Pharisees that they believed was the Christ would be what? The Antichrist. And you need to understand something there. Anti does not mean against. It means pseudo. Pseudo Christ. It looks like the Christ. It acts like the Christ. But it's not the Christ. So there's a lot that's going on there. He knows what they're accusing him of. Two chapters later, you see it because he actually says that you're of your father the same. Prior to there, there's no specific mention of it. So we have these descriptions, and you need to understand this. It's kind of foundational, but you need to just get this. The description of the enemy is not the proper name. Because it doesn't really matter, ultimately, what the name is. What are some of the descriptions of him? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, and fear, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, that's interesting. What does it call him? The tempter. It doesn't say a tempter. It says the tempter. Very specific. This is a reference to somebody. And what was the net result that they were concerned with? That he had tempted them and their labor would be in vain. What labor would that be? They preached the gospel to them. What do we see in Mark 4 and Luke 8? The gospel is sown, but the enemy comes and steals the seed from their heart, lest they believe and be saved. You see, all of these things line up. This tempter is coming in and deceiving what Paul believed would be people that would be converted, for lack of a better term. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, it says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. Down to verse 38, the field is the world, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one. Again, what do we see? The description is the evil one, but it's a reference to someone or something very specific. It's not an evil one, you were just deceived or anything like that. There is a source of this, source of temptation, source of evil. How about in Revelation chapter 12? Verse 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come down. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, what do we see here? The accuser of our brothers. Another description of someone, something, that somebody is accusing them day and night. And he's gone at this point. He's thrown down. This is a good thing. Now, what does that matter thus far? We're just painting a small picture of so we get an understanding of who we're dealing with. Because here's the thing. Most of our beliefs, when it comes to the things of God and angels and heaven and hell and Satan and demons, does not come from Scripture. It comes from books and movies, almost exclusively. The reason for that is because we're inundated with those all the time but we've never stopped to ask. well is that actually how these things work it's the same thing when i ask somebody who is the king of hell who do we always say it's lucifer is that what scripture says no he's not the king of hell in fact he's not there something to think about who's the king of hell god is sounds weird right that doesn't make a great movie What do we see in John chapter 12, verse 31? It says, now the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That's a description. He is the ruler of this world. How about this one? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Who did it? The God of this world. What did he do? He blinded their minds. That means he can do that, right? Because scripture clearly says he can do that. Can he do it to believers? Very possible. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air. You see, this is very specific of who we're talking about. These things, these people, these individuals, however you want to say it, are specific. We see things that he is described as doing, we see things that he does do. And in here, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, it says, And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Well, you could do this all day long. There are several of these. You see, there are things that he can do and has done only because we have allowed it to take place. We allow it to take place corporately, and we allow it to take place individually. When you get offended... Where do you think that comes from? It's not God. Where do you think it comes from? It comes from this, end of this tempter, somebody trying to get you off course. You see, we could do this all day long, and we could come up with these names, and we could come up with these descriptions, but I'm going to get the end from the beginning, and then we're going to drill in later. But what name only matters about Satan, Lucifer, whatever? What is the one thing that God calls him that we care about? Defeated. That's it. Now think about this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of, of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, which also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses, and the circumcision of your flesh he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that is, was against us, that which is contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Who did it? God did it. What did he do? He defeated them. By what? Taking the handwriting requirements. He nailed them to the cross. That's exciting. That preach is good. And what do we say? The law has been nailed to the cross. We're no longer subject to it. And that's exactly what God said. Right? Wrong. Because that is not what it just said. You see, this is coming back to thinking biblically. Understanding what's taking place. Because you know what? The law is irrelevant to you and I. It doesn't matter. Who cares if it was nailed, not nailed, fulfilled, not fulfilled? The only thing we care about is the prophetic nature of it. But here, this is not talking about this. This entire passion passage is talking about this legalistic thing that was taking place, and things had to be done in a certain order to be right with God. Right? That is why Jesus is fulfilling the Passover lamb and the Passover itself. Every detail was down to the wire. Every, every, every little nuance was there, done by Jesus. Because if he didn't do it that way, he didn't follow his own rules. Right? He played the game. But the handwriting of requirements is nothing to do with the law, the Old Testament law, the 613 law of Moses. What it has to do with is when at this time, when you were sentenced for anything, whatever that thing was, they would write it out and you'd be given a sentence, whether that was to go to jail, whether that was to pay a fine, whatever the case may be. You were, it was all written out for you. Once that has been satisfied, you've served your time, they would then sign off on it, and they would write the Greek word telestai, which means it is finished. And you would be required to keep that document with you because at any point in time, if somebody accused you, like, aren't you the guy that killed that kid on accident, whatever? you would be like, oh, no, no, no. I have fulfilled the requirements that were against me had to keep it with him. Now, what would happen is if you were in jail and then you got loose, you broke out, the one responsible of overseeing you would then have to fill in your stay and fulfill the sentence against you. Kind of a big deal. So being a jailer, not all sunshines and lollipops, okay? We watched this take place in Acts chapter 16, we know the story, Paul and Cyrus, all of that. Watch what happens here. But at midnight, Paul and Cyrus were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundation of the prisons were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loose. Now, if you're there, what would you do? Adios, muchachos. I'm Gandhi, right? Because clearly, now think about this. This is a moment... You would think Paul and Silas were praying for. Why? They were jailed unfairly. They weren't supposed to be put in jail. They're put there. And something happens in an earthquake. Have you ever been through an earthquake? Has anybody ever experienced one? I experienced one, one time, okay? Living, growing up in Auburn, Nebraska, believe it or not. I was laying on an air mattress. I think it was 1993, don't quote me on that. And it felt like a truck drove by and it shook the air mattress. And I'm like, hmm, what was that? And you know what people did? They do what good capitalists do. They made t-shirts that said, I survived the great earthquake. Sold tons of them. Good for them. That was the only earthquake I've ever been to. But you know what I noticed? Is that if you're in handcuffs and shackles and the walls begin to shake, the walls might crumble, but you know what doesn't happen? Locks don't open. So this is supernatural. This would be an answer to prayer for any of us, right? If we're sitting in that situation, God... Open these chains so I can leave. And the chains are open. What do we do? I'm out. Verse 27. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul said, called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm. We are all here. Now, this is big. Two parts to this. First of all, they didn't leave. Not just Paul and Silas. Nobody left. Now, that's interesting because there are other guys there who probably deserved to be there. You'd think they'd leave, but they didn't. But why did he draw the sword to kill himself? Because he knew what was going to happen. Every one of those prisoners that left, their sentence were now going to fall on him. And he was going to have to fulfill that, and he did not want to deal with that. so he's ready to kill himself. You should be picking up on this parallel that's going on here. You see, all of mankind had judgment against them. Because we've all broken God's laws, his commandments, and all of that. And rightfully so, the accuser of the brethren has every right to make an accusation against you. Because you have missed the mark. But Jesus took the handwriting of requirements that were against you. He nailed them to the cross, thus fulfilling the sentence, the judgment that was against you. And what did he say as he was hanging there? To tell us that. It is finished. Now, anytime the accuser of the brethren comes to bring that up, all you have to do is like, no, 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 it's been fulfilled. You guys see that? You see how powerful this is? See, you need to understand who your enemy is because the power he has against you is none, and yet he's wreaking havoc in the lives of believers everywhere today. Why is that? It's because we don't know who we're dealing with or what we're dealing with. We believe we have authority and power over him. We don't necessarily know why that is, and we don't necessarily know how to act upon it. We just kind of believe it. You see, Jesus took them, disarmed them, made a public spectacle of them, because what happened? When a kingdom invaded another kingdom, and they would go, and they would take all the rulers and powers, and they would parade them through the town, that way everybody associated with that kingdom would know there's a new guy in charge. What did he do? It's the exact same thing. The accuser of the brother no longer has a right to him. We've been redeemed. We've been reconciled to God. Why did death enter this world? It was through sin. All who sin are subject to death. Satan is the God of this world. Jesus never sinned. Death had no right to hold him. Death couldn't hold him. The veil... Before him, he silenced the foe. You guys see this? That's why that song's so powerful. It's just scriptural. And so we're going to worship God again. What we're going to do. If you guys would come on up, we're going to sing this. But you got to get this: when that veil tore, there was no longer a separation between man and God. That was over. Never again will the presence of God. Be separated from mankind. We're in it every day. And when we worship God, we're in it together. But we should be this at home. You see, it's the understanding of who God is, who we are in relationship with Him, how we worship Him. Every day matters. Every moment matters. Every word we speak matters. We're, we're speaking fruit from our heart. But who the enemy is, he's defeated. We keep letting them hang around. So let's stand up. Let's worship God one more time before we go. And whatever it is you need from the Lord today, you can go ahead. Whatever it is you need from the Lord today, just take it. Reach out and get it. I'll pray for you. If you want prayer, you come up here. I'll pray for you. If you want people around you to pray for you, just ask them. They'll pray for you. There are people that are full of the Spirit of God that when they lay hands on the sick, they recover and whatever you need in your life, and whatever the enemy has done you you is holding you back right now, allow God to break that off you because he has no legal right to you any longer. So quit letting him hang around. It's time to get back to the basics, the foundations of what God has done. You go right ahead.
1: Beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Sing it again, what a beautiful. What a beautiful name it is, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ my King. What a beautiful name it is nothing compares to this what a beautiful name it is the name of jesus beautiful name it is the name of jesus beautiful name it is the name of jesus are you ready to declare this come on this bridge death could not hold you the veil tore before you you silence the boast of sin and grave the heavens are roaring the praise of your glory for you are raised to life The kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful
0: So you gotta understand something. The reason death couldn't hold him is it had no right to him. It was an illegal execution. That's right. And they realized it too late. They took something that didn't belong to them, but the power of God can overcome anything evil. And God raised him from the grave because death had no right to him. You gotta understand that everything he did was for you and I. Everything that he suffered was for you and I. And now we're to take that moment in our lives, going from death to life, and live it and share it with the world. But we're not. Because we've allowed those stones to be removed from our lives. We don't like to admit that. Sometimes our arrogance and our ego will get in the way of what God is doing. But God has been trying to get a hold of people in this room, in their hearts, for months and months and months. And we've not allowed Him to do so. Because we always assume it's for somebody else. But what if we looked in the mirror and said, am I a reflection of Jesus overcoming death, separating good from evil? Am I I a witness of His grace? Am I a witness of His mercy? Am I a witness of His power? When it says the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells inside of us, that should mean something to you. You see, there's times like this where we worship and we just don't sing words. My God, look what you've done. Death couldn't hold it. Nothing could. Let's sing that bridge one more time. Thank you, Jesus. Death could not
1: hold you, The they tore before you. You silence the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory. For you are raised to life Equal, now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above
0: all names. Sing it out. What a powerful name. What a powerful name it is.
1: What a powerful name. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus.
0: What a name it is, the name of Jesus. The name above all names. We worship you today, Lord. Church, I hope you get it. See, there's a reason that name is powerful. And that name has been given to you. And the authority associated with that name has given to you. And your world is a reflection of what you believe. And your world is a reflection of what you have said. And your world is a reflection of what you have done. And if you've allowed the enemy in, then you need to take him out. Because he has no right to be there. It's the name above all name. The name of which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't say they want to. It says they're going to. You need to live your life It's a living sacrifice for him. Stop making excuses. It's time to rise up. Father, we worship you. And I thank you, Lord, that you are moving in our hearts. That you're opening our eyes to who we truly are. And what you've truly done. And we will no longer take that love and compassion and mercy and power for granted, Lord. But every day we will live our life to the fullest. your glory, to know you and make you known, Lord, every day, every day. Lord, I thank you that you are moving in our hearts and our lives, that we're leaving today different than we came. We've been, we've come in and been built up, now it's time to go out and do your work. And so, Lord, we give you the glory and honor. May our lives be a reflection of your goodness. We are so grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. God's good, right, church? You guys be blessed. We'll see you Wednesday.